HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Farm Report. I'm Jack Inslee. And you're here with Heather Hyman. Heather from Heritage. How's it going, everybody? Uh, I've been gone. Heather, you held down the show last week without me. How'd that go? It went very well. It was a really fun time. We had our friend Gwen Chance here from Roberta's. And then we had um, some of our first international guests from Montreal here to talk about uh, the making of maple syrup. Cool. Very cool. Well, I was actually down at Leaping Waters Farm, which, uh, as you know, Alec Bradford uh, runs that farm. They raise the ancient white, oh, ancient white park cattle. I'm yes. sorry, and uh, some really crazy other animals, heritage turkeys, some really weird pigs with these ears. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the ones the large blacks. The they're large not that blacks, weird. Yeah. Man, they just weird. look weird. <laughs> they have these these ears that are over their eyes, so they, they totally can't see. They wouldn't survive in nature, uh, but they're, they're fun. And uh, it was a really great experience. We helped him build a barn for, uh, he's going to embark on a heritage turkey project, raise a bunch of them. So uh, my first time at a farm, it was great. Yeah, Jack, why don't you tell me a little bit about what went on down there? What I mean, who did you go with? Why were you there? And what happened while you were all down there? Well, Patrick took a van and uh, he drove myself, Chris Parakini, Brandon Hoy, uh, Sarah Trognan, ben and uh, Ben Flanner from Brooklyn Grange also, and my girlfriend Francesca. And we all went down there pretty much just to give some manpower to help build this barn. So... Um, by the time <laughs> by the time we left it was built which was was really a uh, good feeling so in 2 days five or six guys basically put up the infrastructure for something that's going to produce how many turkeys 2, do we think 2000 heritage that turkeys is awesome yeah it's pretty cool so that's community um, right there, right? Bringing down a big group of guys from Brooklyn down to Shawsville, Virginia, getting it done so that we exactly. can all have a little bit uh, something better in our food system. And man, we ate all we ate was ancient white oak and ancient white park. Park, I'm sorry. Sponsor. <laughs> Got Will Harris and on breeds. my mind. Yeah, always. But um, it oh, was delicious beef. Really, really good. 
Uh, and I will attest to that. That um, when I first tried the Ancient White Park cattle, it was the best piece of beef I had ever tasted in my yeah. life. I mean, no hands down. Even Patrick himself said it too. And ever since then, Alec's been a big part of uh, the Growing with Heritage, and uh, we are excited to see Alec and Leaping Waters Farm grow with um, everyone else in this small family farm food movement. Yeah, absolutely. So, moving forward, today is not about beef or uh, heritage turkeys. We're talking sheep, and uh, we're going to be talking with... James Twomey of Sandstone Ridge Farm there in Lafargue, Wisconsin. Um, they've actually been on the program before, so we're going to talk a little bit less today about, you know, the breed and um, their farm and more about, you know, where they've come from the time they've started their farm till now. Um, and as some of you probably know, we are about uh, less than a month away from Easter. So um, for lamb farmers, Easter is definitely one of their biggest time of year. So let's take a quick break. We'll get him on the phone. We'll come back. We'll see what the deal is. Actually, he's with us. James. James, you're there? Yes, I am. Hi. Awesome. Great surprise. How's it going? It's going well. We're so glad to have you back on the program with us. It's always a pleasure, Heather and Jack. Wonderful. Um, James, when did you and your wife, Lisa, start this farm in um, Wisconsin, Sandstone Ridge Farm? 2004. 2004. So you guys are pretty young. Yes. All right. Well, basically, I'd love to start off and just tell a little tale about the Tunis breed which you raise, and then we'll really get into the nitty-gritty here. Um, And you can embark on this story with us a little bit, and Jack is going to get it going, and then maybe you could add to it. So what we have here, the Tunis sheep is amongst the oldest breeds of livestock in America and was developed in 1799 from a cross between a Middle Eastern fat-tailed sheep from Tunisia and local American sheep. It's said that Maynard Spiegner uh, is responsible for having saved the Tunis breed in the United States from extinction during the Civil War. He hid 30 head of the purebred Tunis lamb in the swamps near a river that runs near Columbia, South Carolina. After the war, Spiegner sold 10 head of his sheep to James A. Giams, who entered the Tunis in the Crawford, Indiana County Fair, where the stock was awarded for its meat, wool, and breeding qualities. Does that sound about right? It sure does. So when you guys started your venture, how much land did you have and how many animals did you have on your farm? Uh, we started with six acres and 13 animals. And, and a, uh, we had an encyclopedia of things we didn't know <laughs> and learned, you know, largely through talking with uh, old timers, you know, people who had been raising sheep for 50 and 60 years uh, referenced a lot of books and, you know, learned through experience. We've, we've grown with heritage foods as well. Well, that brings me to my next question. Where are you guys at now? You started with 10 head, you said, and um, how many animals are, are you currently have on your farm? We've got 40. Wow. So we're exponentially growing. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's sort of a challenge because you need to have the flock increase so that you can produce more lambs as you, but as you produce more lambs, you also want to increase sales. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's always sort of a balance between increasing the flock and being able to pay for an increased flock. And so we've, we've tried to, to move with a sort of a balanced approach of, of uh, selling lambs and keeping some for breeding. So what do you attribute that success to? How did you make it happen? Um, we attribute it to the breed uh, because mm. I don't think we 
could have made it happen if we had chosen a breed that was too small. I mean, if the body size is too small, you have fixed costs Mm -hmm. that don't get reimbursed with a small amount of meat. Um, If we had chosen a flock that was really hard to handle, uh, some of the uh, breeds that are most popular are actually the wildest and the least friendly. Hmm. We we stumbled into Tunis. I wish I could hmm. say that it was a conscious choice. We were fortunate in picking Tunis, and it, it, it they have a great balance between being easy to manage and friendly and producing meat that people want to buy again and again. And as we mentioned with that short story a little earlier, how it was such you know how it was a saved breed, isn't it still one of the most rare breeds of sheep that you can um, have here in the Americas? Yes, it is on the uh, livestock breed conservancy list. Um, it, it was uh, basically everything you said was true. It was imported by um, a man who worked with General Washington during the Revolutionary War. He was Secretary of State at the time. And they were uh, having problems with uh, pirates from the northern part of Africa. And one of the ways that they tried to calm the pirates down was to increase legitimate trade. And uh, the Tunisian sheep came over here as part of a, you know, uh, anti-piracy movement, I guess you'd say. The United States government was, was, you know, kind of engaging in a, in international relations. And they thrived here, uh, especially in what was kind of called the, the Middle South, of uh, Pennsylvania, Tennessee's, Carolinas, mm. and then slowly to Indiana and, uh, you know, of course, to Wisconsin. Now, isn't there some kind of um, association with the White House and the Tunis breed? Um, it's true that uh, several presidents owned Tunis. Uh, and the Tunis Rams were really valued because they sort of had the ability, I guess because they were relatively wild in northern Africa and had a completely different genetics than most British sheep, because most sheep come from the British Isles, um, that those different genetics created what scientists call hybrid vigor. And that's really what Heritage Foods is all about, keeping alive genetic diversity so that there's hybrid vigor in the the flocks and uh, herds on farms today. Mm, now, now, from your experiences with the Tunis, do you see, in general, a brighter future for rare breeds of all kinds? Uh, have, has the reception been good? I I don't have a huge historical context to give you. Like, you know, I've been doing it 30 years, and these are the changes I've seen. Right. But what I can tell you is that my impression is that uh, the slow food movement, the heritage food movement, the grass-fed food movement, the or- organic food movement have all created a kind of a, a synergy, a, a critical mass where small family farmers can make ends meet. And at the end of the fiscal year, that's kind of what has to happen. You have to produce something that people want but you have to do it in such a way that it's value added. And it's harder to, you know, if I can share this with you as a compliment, producing for heritage foods is Mm -hmm. challenging. Mm. You guys want fresh product, yes, which means last minute. There's no other way mm -hmm. to make it fresh except (laughs) last minute deadline. It's got to be there. 
uh, and the things we do to make sure that it gets to your customers fresh, on time, really close to Easter, that's a, that's a challenge. And but I, we're proud to do it. I'm, and I'm really happy to hear that. And I'm also really excited to be able to give you guys the props for um, how much I really think that you've succeeded in these past three years. This is going to be our third year selling your Tunis lamb. And um, I remember the first year that we were working with you guys, there was so much back and forth on what we could expect to get out of um, you know, a whole lamb in terms of its cuts. And until you really brought the animal to the processing plant and got your finished weights back, we were really all a little bit unsure of what to expect and um, after the second year and now this is going to be the third year I'm really proud to say that we have those specs down pat we know what to expect out of a certain size animal after it's gone through its processing so um, I just want to say thank you for for that because it takes a lot of work and a lot of back and forth and also learning what the customer wants and uh, you know providing the most economically sound way to buy meat and, you know, we were definitely on a learning curve, and I remember so many questions both you and other customers would ask, you know, basic questions that, you know, our answer was, gee, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't know that. And now, it, you know, uh, we appreciate the patience that you had, and, uh, and we're glad that both the breed and our management style and Heritage Foods is out there uh, making a difference every day. Awesome. Well, James, we want to take a quick break, and then uh, we do know Easter's coming, so we want to talk to you a bit about the seasonality of things on your farm. So stick with us. We're going to be right back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. on the Heritage Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. It's uh, Heather here from Heritage and Jack Inslee. Thanks to Hearst Ranch for sponsoring today's program. And if you're listening, you have any questions for our farmer or us, call us at 718-497-2128 and we'd be happy to take your call. Email us at info at heritageradionetwork.com if you're late on this one. Uh, Again, 
Search the podcast. Subscribe. I know you need your farming news. Also, I'd like to thank our new producer, Dan Brindell, who's holding us down in the booth, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. So, James, uh, first and foremost, I'd like to know how the winter treated your farm. Uh, this was a good winter. Um, the, uh, you know, the upper Midwest gets a, a lot of snow, and we have some brutal nights, you know, when you get to negative 15. Uh, one of the things that we've learned, and I think a lot of uh, sheep producers learn, is that if you try lambing too early, lambing being the season that they're giving birth, um, that, you know, you're fighting the elements when you just don't have to. And uh, so we've decided that we're doing lambing literally today. We had four really? born, yesterday five born. This <laughs> is lambing week. It is uh, and this type of weather when it's 40 in the daytime, 30 at night. It's uh, It's better for everyone on the the humans and the the sheep. <laughs> We're lucky we got about you know fifty five here right now. So oh my gosh, a little yeah. bit warmer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what are you doing to prepare for Easter then? I guess. And when's it? When's the preparation for Easter start? Is actually really what I want to know too. Oh, I I would say that <laughs> a, about a week ago we started getting everything in line, which is making sure we have. FedEx pouches, making mm-hmm. sure we have insulated boxes, you know, making sure that uh, when we set up an appointment at a USDA facility, we set up those appointments in late October. Mm-hmm. You need to. That's mm-hmm. how, yeah, that's, they're the prima donnas of the industry. They are the gatekeepers. <laughs> and so we call and make sure that, you know, we double check our confirmation. It, it's just like any complicated activity. You you do the planning, the double-checking, you know, making sure the spare tires in the car. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had flat tires on, you know, uh, oh, market no. day. So oh, no. whatever it takes to be prepared as possible, uh, that's, you know, that's what we do. The, the thing about uh, sheep production and lamb production is that you're always doing two things simultaneously. You're you're raising this time of year, mm-hmm. you're raising the baby lambs that are being born. And so you're checking on the moms, making sure that everything's going okay, being a midwife, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And, and you're preparing last year's lamb crop for market. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a, an intense activity of taking care of this Easter and next. preparing for next one simultaneously. Yeah, so basically you, you said in, you know, I guess October, you know, you started and this week you said you started, but that's really just for the marking of this year's lambs. You basically started getting ready for Easter last year. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that would be the way to think about it. Is when the, the animals that are about to be taken to market, uh, you know, were born about 11 months ago, mm-hmm. and um, which means we put the ram in five and a half, half months before that i mean it's a it's a cycle that keeps going backwards and it's the cycle of life and let's be without being too uh you know coy about it it's the cycle of life and we're planning the the birth of new lambs and planning the the lambs to market and this is the busiest time of year there's there's always a surge on what we would call you know ethnic uh, jewish and islamic holidays and a little surge around christmas time mm-hmm. But the Orthodox and Catholic Easter's are are by by far the the largest share of of the land market. Definitely. Well, um, I was actually wanting to get into Easter, but I was going to ask you real quick if it's um, it, you know, we were 
big supporter of small family farmers, but do you find that your USDA inspected slaughterhouse gives you any trouble or, you know, like doesn't try and squeeze you in as easily as they maybe would someone who has like more volume of animals to bring in? Uh, I can say that that is our experience. I mean, we need them and uh, we try to be patient, but they are not as accommodating as uh, the state inspectors' um, facilities are. But when you're engaged in interstate commerce, Mm -hmm. until the laws are changed, and there are some laws that are pending and might be about a year away from being enacted, where a state facility will be simultaneously a federal facility Mm. in Wisconsin, and we're looking forward to that. But I'll give you an example. Um, You would think that a USDA facility that smokes uh, ham legs and uh, bacon would smoke a leg of lamb. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought that that would be an excellent product. Uh, We had some people who were very curious and interested, and the answer was no. Wow. And it wasn't like here's the reason. It's mm. we don't want to. Sheep are a minor breed. We oh. just don't need to. And yes, so short answer to your question. Mm. Yes, it is frustrating because um, the the lamb industry is not as large uh, as the uh, pork and beef industry. Now, you really, you, you, you interested me there at the smoked lamb. Like, what, what would you expect it to come out like? Well, we did find uh, one state person to do it, and uh, there was uh, a gentleman who was just enthusiastic about what he was going to um, call a kosher bacon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was sort of like smoking the leg of lamb and then uh, slicing it into strips. And uh, uh, from my taste experience and his taste experience, it, it came out tasting like ham. Really? Not like, not like bacon, but more like, you know, smoked ham. It was... Uh, a pleasant surprise, but we just couldn't, you know, we could not interest our USDA facility uh, to do it. So that's, um, but it's an idea out there if there's someone, <laughs> someone yeah, else exactly. who, who has a local. That's why um, we've got you uh, on here. Someone's <laughs> listening. It someone. must be frustrating. <laughs> I mean, there, there would definitely be a market for it, I, I would think so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, especially, you know, how close Easter and Passover are to each other, as you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. that lamb is very popular this time of year coming up. Um, do you have like customers in your area? Have you made connections with chefs, or is there a demand locally for your for the tunis? We find it uh, hard to break through a prejudice, and that prejudice existed before we entered this this uh, family farm mm-hmm. uh, industry, and it, you know it's going to be a while before. But um, foreign lamb is associated with quality. And domestic lamb is associated with inconsistency, hmm. and I, oh, I, I don't the think beauty that, of it. <laughs> well, yeah, in a way. Um, and so, what we're, you know, uh, when you're at a restaurant and you see someone uh, a, a menu that says uh, New Zealand mm-hmm. lamb or uh, Australian lamb, I'm going to tell you a secret. Half the time, it's going to be Chinese lamb mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. is the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, but number two, there there is nothing inherently better or fresher. Uh, American lamb is 10,000 miles fresher than mm-hmm. New Zealand and Absolutely. Chinese lamb. And we'd also like to think that American producers can respond to niche markets with, with greater 
dexterity and diversity than uh, a farmer in southern China. And by golly, mm. we're going to do it. Uh, yeah, we're on our way. And we're supporting you full, full-heartedly. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so, James, what do you anticipate the next big change in your farm to be? What do you see on the horizon? Um, we, uh, we, we definitely need to produce our own hay. I think that's the next step. Um, most of our current uh, land is very, very hilly. It's a part of Wisconsin that was not covered with glaciers, so mm-hmm. it looks a lot like uh, western Pennsylvania and West Virginia, very hilly, very, uh, and the sheep do like that. We're going to need some flat land mm-hmm. and some equipment to produce our own hay because it's hay manufactured by others doesn't always have the consistency that we need. Um, so that's our next big, our next step is to produce our own hay. Do a lot of farms produce their own hay? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, the larger ones do because a, you need about three pieces of equipment to produce hay. Each piece of equipment costs as much as an SUV. Wow. Yeah. And are and, these, um, like, the, can you buy them used? I mean, auctions, what's the best way yes. for you to try and find them? It, it, it's kind of um, uh, a plus or minus. It's mm-hmm. just like when you were a teenager looking for a car, you could afford a used one, but not all used cars are the same, and there are some where it's hard to get parts. So uh, we've, we've been kind of, you know, carefully shopping around, taking our time, but we're definitely going to be looking for some used equipment, name brand equipment where spare parts are readily available. It's still going to be a significant capital expense, though. Definitely. Well, hopefully it pays itself off. I'm sure it will. Well, I have another question for you that we kind of want to ask all of our farmers. So if you can imagine magically that you could have hey, a van of workers show up on your farm tomorrow, what would you have them do? Oh, golly. Um, no cost. <laughs> okay. I, 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 we, would, uh, <laughs> we would clear... Uh, shrubs. There are small trees that uh, take over pastures, and each little shrub and tree that's growing is taking up grass and clover space. And so we would we would put them to work with uh, small saws and uh, lobbers. Uh, we would uh, take care of little scrub trees to create uh, more pasture space, without a doubt. Cool. Um, all right. Well, we are coming to the end here. So I have one last question for you. And then um, as a farmer, what do you feel the best and most economical way for a customer to buy meat is? Dun, By, it, well, we don't always want to look at price per pound mm-hmm. because there, that, there are hidden costs when you buy um, imported anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we want to do is make sure that when we're purchasing food, it has the highest nutritional value, and that means that the animals were raised humanely, on pasture, as naturally and organically as humanly possible, and that means we're going to pay a little extra premium for that. I think you should, if you can, you should buy from established, reputable dealers as locally as possible. And if you're in a location where it's difficult or too expensive to find it, then certainly on the Internet and through sites like Heritage Foods. 
And I think a broker, which I think is, you know, that's how I think of heritage foods, as mm-hmm. someone who links together the producer and the consumer. Um, you know, the, uh, the Internet has really made that possible. Uh, where 20 years ago, it might have been extremely difficult to do that. And on one note, I'd like to add to that. Anyone that is buying from, a, you know, a, an independent family farmer, I don't want to call us, or Carlo Petrini actually doesn't want to call us consumers anymore. Anyone that's there to um, help these farmers should be known as a co-producer. Because really, in the end, that's what we're helping happen. We're helping produce a better quality product by supporting the farmer who's raising it. I think when we think of it as we're all in this together, our, our food production and, you know, continuing our raising our families and our life cycle, it, it is a community effort. And it's not like anybody needs to make any sacrifices. The food's great, so everyone's happy in the end. That's important. Well, James, thanks so much for your hard work. Um, everybody, you could check out Sandstone Ridge Farm online by just going to www.sandstoneridgefarm.com. Um, and there will be an opportunity for um, a limited amount of tunis actually available through Heritage Foods USA in the upcoming weeks. And um, we'd like to, again, thank uh, Hearst Ranch for sponsoring today's Farm Report. And um, we hope to have you all here again with us next Wednesday, live at 5. Thanks so much, James. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.